Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Landides, and I want to thank you for taking the time to join us for today's show. On the episode today, we welcome the very first UFC welterweight champion and UFC Hall of Famer Pat Militich to the program. I'm excited to connect with him. He was a Strike Force commentator. In fact, he broadcasted the very first Strike Force event on Showtime, Shamrock versus Diaz. Normally, Frank Shamrock would have been in that slot, but Frank was busy fighting, so Pat was asked to fill in and did a great job, so they kept him on. He ended up commentating a lot of Strike Force Challenger events. So we talk about his view on the promotion. We talk about a little bit about his fighting career, and then we also discuss uh, his proposed fight with Frank Shamrock that unfortunately it was supposed to take place in Strike Force but did not happen and then we also talk about Strike Force's place in MMA history so there's lots to get to so without further ado let's get to it Hello everybody thank you for joining us on the line with us the first UFC welterweight champion UFC 16 welterweight tournament winner UFC Hall of Famer trainer of around a dozen MMA world champions Guys like Matt Hughes, Tim Sylvia, Jens Pulver, Robbie Lawler, so many others. Pat Militich, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Phil. Yeah, it's great to great to connect with you. I, I want to. We're, we're going to mostly focus on uh, your involvement with Strike Force, but I do want to touch on a couple highlights of, of your fighting career. You mean you made your MMA debut all the way back in '95, and you won several one night tournaments very early in your career. And I'm curious, looking back now. Did you, a different type of challenge for sure. Did you prefer that versus focusing on one fight or is that just what was, uh, what was made available to you at that time? Yeah. I mean, that was when my career started for the most part, um, at least before I got into the UFC and my first UFC event was a four man tournament, but, um, they were called the battle of the masters on the South side of Chicago, eight man tournaments, no weight divisions, no rules, no time limits, all that stuff. Um, so it was back then winner take all. So you got nothing for second place. Hmm. So, you know, for me being the smallest guy by far in the tournaments, both times, you know, I was probably considered an underdog, but the one thing going for me is I, I guess I, I grew up in Iowa wrestling and um, had some boxing and kickboxing experience, quite a bit of that, you know, over the years. And by the time, by the time it was, uh, and also traditional martial arts, Shorei Ru karate was a, Black Belt and Shorei Ru Karate. So I had quite a bit of, you know, pretty varied, uh, varied um, type of training. So I was, I guess, maybe the most qualified technically for it. Well, it, I mean, obviously it, it worked out for you. You mentioned fighting guys that were bigger than you. I didn't realize this until I did my research, but you you took on Dan the B Severn and, and fought him to a draw, a 20-minute a 20 draw. I mean, that's what he had to outweigh you by a good, what, 75 pounds, probably so, something like that. 60, 75 pounds. That, that must've been pretty crazy. Yeah. I think he was, I think he was 270 when we fought. I think I was about 185. Man. God. Well, that, well, that must've been fun. Especially being a wrestler. That must've been fun having to deal with a guy that big, that could basically. Well, it like, was yeah. more, more than, more than anything. It was, um, you know, it was like 95 degrees out, very humid. And we were fighting outdoors and, yeah, dealing with somebody that big who's a who's a an amazing wrestler. It wasn't it wasn't a fun 20 minutes, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. Well, uh, another very tough fighter you took on, Mikey Burnett, you won the you split decision him to win the inaugural UFC welterweight champion. So you you go down in history. I mean, you're the first uh 21-minute round. Got to be curious about that as well. How was it preparing for a round that was that long? 
versus today's five minute rounds? Do you have to do different cardio? Like what's, how, how does that, how do you prepare for something like that? Well, I mean, obviously I did a lot of cardio, a lot of, a lot of explosive lifting stuff, but more than anything in training, it would be where I would, you know, train with guys that were much bigger than me who were very good wrestlers, very good football players, that type of stuff. Guys from, you know, 260, 280 pounds type guys. And they would just alternate on me um, and keep going. And they would just make me keep going for 45 minutes to an hour straight. So, you know, that no matter what I was, I was going to be, I was going to be in shape enough to at least go that long with, with bigger people. Yeah. Well, it obviously worked for you. And and then the sport began to evolve and transition into the uh, either the three or five minute rounds, depending on the, the, you know, the organization and the, the competition and all that. So, but right. you can, you continued fighting, you, but you had to deal with a lot of injuries. I know that you had a, a pretty serious neck injury and started focusing more and more on coaching before eventually getting into commentary. I'm curious what made you want to get behind the microphone and provide your, your point of view as a commentator. You know, to be honest with you, I mean, I loved coaching. I still love coaching. I, 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 you know, I think we had 95, 95, um, 95 people make it to televised careers, you know, a, a wide variety of people. And uh, I loved all of them. You know, it was a, a great time. But, um, you know, I had basically gotten to the point where I think I was ready for a change. I'm the kind of guy that climbs mountains and then I don't look back. You know, uh, in terms of fighting, you know, I reached all my goals. In terms of coaching, I've reached my goals and got a call from David Dinkins from Showtime Sports and asked me if I would sit in for one show, a strike force show, where Frank Shamrock was fighting Nick Diaz and Frank was the normal color commentator. Mm -hmm. And obviously he wasn't going to be able to do that job when he had Nick Diaz all over him. So um, I sat in for one show. I did, did the show. And then afterward... Um, David Dinkins walked up to me after the show and basically said, you know, you're not bad at this. Would you like to stay on board and sign a contract with us? And I absolutely, I'd love to. So, you know, my years at Showtime and calling the Strike Force shows was, you know, it was an amazing experience. Um, very high level production. Um, I mean, they, they spare no, they cut no corners at Showtime. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're we my my co-host and I have been watching all the events as we get up to this era. For me, from the beginning of two thousand six, and now to the you know what we call the Showtime era, and I mean the difference in production value, you just can't understate it. I mean, they were with HDNet before, and that was a that was a step up from where they were when they didn't have you know any sort of national TV deal. Then you get to Showtime, and I mean, slick pack, packages and music. Uh, consistency on commentary. I mean, yeah, you were there for the first one and, you know, Frank was supposed to be the regular guy, but I mean, just, you know, having a guy like Gus Johnson and I mean, Mar Ronell is my favorite commentator of all time. I mean, to see just the, the consistency that in the commentary, even that was, was a big step up from where they're, where they were at. So um, I, I gotta say, I, you know, I was impressed with the job you did. I, I, you know, just watched it not too long ago and I, I thought it, you did a great job and it made sense for them to, you know, to bring you back in. But before strike force had you know kind of really hit their their stride you were heavily involved with the ifl before it folded you even competed in the in the promotion against henzo gracie from a a perspective of you know there's more than the ufc how important is it for there to be other major mma promotions besides the ufc well i mean the athletes um having the ability of course to be able to negotiate and pit pit uh, competitors against each other 
you know, for their services is, I mean, that's what, that's what capitalism and freedom is all about. Right. You know, so um, in my mind, I think it's, it's, there needs to be at least a couple more big organizations right now. Um, people throwing around a good chunk of money to compete for athletes and balance things out a little bit. You know, the, the sport of MMA is one that there are no teams. It's not like the NFL and then the teams individually pay their athletes and, you know, those sorts of things. It's, that's just not, that's not how it works in combat sports. So there, there really needs to be competition. There, there absolutely has to be. And I think that's never, never going to happen until, you know, that we're able to maybe at least get the Ali act put in place and some other things where, where the athletes have a little more negotiating power. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it's just good for competition. It's good for the sport overall. So I, I agree yeah. with you. Uh, so we, you know, we discussed and you made your, your commentary day before strike force when the promotion first appeared on showtime uh, in 2010 with that first event, Shamrock versus Diaz. I'm curious leading into that. What was your, uh, your impression of strike force? You know, Hey, this is a, this is a good train to get on, but what, what, what did you think about strike force before being brought in to do commentary for them? Well, I mean, look, they were doing a great job. Scott Coker's a very bright guy. He knows what he's doing. And he, I mean, he invested years and years and years to get it to the point where, you know, it could go to HD net and then on the showtime. Right. So, um, I loved, I loved what, what Coker was doing and he was taking guys that were unknowns and building them into stars, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's what he did really well. And, you know, that, that's, I, I respect Scott a great deal for, for the impact he's had on MMA, you know? Well, it's, you, you know, you said that he took guys and, and built them up, but that's true. But he also would mix in established veterans, big name guys. And early on, he had to rely on, you know, he brought in Bob Sapp for, you know, for one fight. He brought in a guy, Frank Trigg for one fight. He would bring in more established names for one fight. And then once he was able to, once he bought the elite XC assets and he brought in over 40 fighter contracts, he didn't really have to do that anymore. They could really be more of an identity beyond, beyond guys like Gilbert Melendez and, and Josh Thompson. So you actually almost ended up being part of that. You, in addition to doing commentary, you apparently also wanted to fight. And there was a, uh, a verbal agreement between you and Frank Shamrock at one point, which is ironic when you have the two color commentators basically agreeing to fight one another after he lost to Nick Diaz. Um, from what I read, the fight never got past the negotiation phase, unfortunately. And, and then Shamrock, Shamrock ended up retiring. Can you shed any further light on, on what happened there and why the fight never came to fruition? Yeah, well, you know, back when I was the 170-pound champion in the UFC and he was the uh, champion in the weight division above me, you know, I was saying to him back then when we were both in our prime, you know, let's let's put the belts on the line. Let's fight, you know, and and he wouldn't do it. He just – he wouldn't do it. And, and I think that, you know, for whatever reason, he uh, – you know, would rather have fought other, other opponents at the time. And so that, that opportunity passed by. And then when we were doing commentary, I said, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea for us to fight now. And Mauro Ronaldo was the one that was pushing for that quite a bit. Oh, really? And we were doing a, a David August um, suit fitting, all, all the commentators. And David August was uh, supplying us all with three very nice suits. And while during that fitting, the whole room, all the commentators started talking about Frank and I fighting. <clears throat> and Frank said, nope, I'm not doing it. 
nope, not doing it. And at one point, Frank and I talked. And this is where Frank is a, a very shrewd and smart businessman. Mm. You know, Frank said, you know, Pat, he goes, I got to be honest with you. He goes, it's not always about fighting the toughest guys. You know, it's sometimes it's got to be about fighting the guy that's going to put the most money in the bank and uh, and basically not not get your ass kicked. <laughs> right. you know so frank and i rolled with each other before i think maybe he, maybe he had an idea what was going to happen <laughs> he, he certainly certainly wasn't going to outbox me um you know so i i think he probably knew you know i i've had him on twice in fact uh i had him on just a, a few shows ago as the as we record this and that fits perfectly with the frank that i've i've spoken with that he doesn't necessarily go after the toughest guy or you know, is just take on all comers. That's not him at all. He thinks about it very much from a storytelling standpoint and also from a business standpoint uh, of, you know, what, what type of money is he going to make off it? And yeah, how much damage and, you know, how much damage is he going to take? That's why he would take on a guy like no disrespect, Phil, Phil Baroni, who, you know, he knows he can beat, but can also talk and sell the fight and all that stuff. And so, um, I, you know, I, and then you have a guy like George Santiago who won a one night tournament in strike force and was looking at it at like a middleweight contender, but nobody knows who he is in the States at that time. So why right. put yourself in that position? So he's very strategic and cerebral for various reasons about why he takes guys on, whether, you know, whether people like it or not, but it, it, it seemed to work for him, you know? So, sure, um, sure. but I appreciate you, you, uh, kind of you know, letting us know that's an, <laughs> didn't know Morrow was pushing for that. And that's interesting that you guys kind of you know, not had a confrontation, but it actually addressed it directly while you're trying on suits. So that's, uh, yeah, it was just, you know, a, a very just casual matter of fact conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well you ended up calling a, a lot of strike force challengers events. So I, I, how was that? Like, I mean, did you enjoy, obviously, you know, maybe you want to be at the large arena with the bigger crowd and, you know, the bigger names, but a lot of guys like Luke Rockhold, Tyron Woodley, a bunch of guys, that, you know, if they didn't make their strike force to be a challenger event, they at least, you know, kind of built themselves up. How was it for you calling those types of shows? Did you prefer them, you know, versus the, the main tent pole events? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I really, I honestly, I didn't care. I love, I love, you know, seeing the new talent um, coming through and being developed. And, you know, it's, it's hard not to love a show that is, you know, packed with big names and, and the crowd, you know, the building's full and all that good stuff. But, you know, the developmental shows and being able to being able to see those guys, those young guys come up like that. You know, um, I knew the minute, uh, you know, I had known Tyron Woodley for years and I knew um, he eventually would become a champion. It was just a matter of time, you know, and, you know, just I, I guess I've always had a good eye for who's going to be who's going to be really good pretty early on, you know? And, um, you know, I'll give you a, give you an example of that. When I can't remember who it was that got hurt and fell out of the, the strike force grand prix and Daniel Cormier was coming in to fight uh, Bigfoot Silva. Oh God. Was it, was yeah. it Alice? Was it Alistair? Alistair might've fallen out. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, you know, David Dinkins asked, started asking everybody from the Showtime production crew all the way around the room. There's like 30 some people in the room around those, you know, those long tables, right? And he would go down the line and say, who's going to win the fight? Daniel Cormier, Bigfoot Silva. And everybody kept going, 
oh my god bigfoot still was going to kill him he's way bigger he's you know this that got through all the way around to me and david Dinkin asked me last and he goes and it was 100 towards bigfoot silva in the entire room until he got to me and he goes he goes pat what do you think and i go Daniel Cormier is going to ragdoll Bigfoot Silva. It won't even be close. <laughs> and everybody's looking at me like, really? And I go, do you guys even understand what Daniel Cormier is? Like, have you done any, any research at all on who this man is? He is going to throw Bigfoot Silva around like he's a child. And uh, so anyway, of course, Daniel did beat right. the out of him. Right. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, I think, People started to maybe understand that, you know, all the years of coaching and fighting it might might have paid off for me. <laughs> yeah. I, I did look it up real quick while you were talking. There it was uh, it was Alistair that fell out, so, um, so okay. I was right on that. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I saw I recently watched Tyron's first strike force fight. He was only two and zero at that time, and he, man, he, I mean, showed off really good striking for a you know for a wrestler, and obviously. He had the wrestling down. I mean, he, he looked like he was a, a guy on the rise. And then uh, Luke Rockhold, you know, he, he started off on, I mean, he fought a couple of times, but started making his name on challenger series, you know, uh, shows. And so it really became a vehicle to build future stars. So I'm, I'm curious, are there any fighters that come to mind that you saw on the challenger shows that, you know, like, yeah, that guy's a future star for sure, whether they became stars or not. Is there anybody that stands out that you saw that you called their fights basically during those events? Well, it's kind of it's from it's it's kind of hard to explain, but <clears throat> since um, and this isn't this isn't anything that's um, negative or anything. It's just something that happened in my past. Is two, two my two oldest brothers committed suicide, so I never kept track of dates or necessarily names or specifics or birthdays or I kind of just learned to erase that stuff that that memory section out of my head. So I never really paid attention to specifics. I just knew when I looked at somebody, I could go, this guy's going to be a monster. If he keeps going, keeps doing what he's doing, he's, he's, he's going to be a world champion, that sort of stuff. Um, I don't remember shows. I've called thousands of fights. I've coached thousands of fights. I've been in a lot of fights. Um, so for me, any specifics, unless you were to go back to pulling up the date and the names and the people on the card, then I could, then I could go into specifics with you. Okay. All right. Well, fair enough. Appreciate you being honest. Um, th- with that in mind, this next question may or may not work then, but are, are there any, are there any moments in strike force, whether you called them or not, or anything, or you were there or not anything that stands out to you, any upsets, you know, knockouts, submissions, uh, you know, fate uh, getting submitted by Fabricio, you know, Cormier winning the, the heavyweight grand prix, any, anything like that, that stands out to you as far as like, this is a signature moment for, for strike force as a promotion. Well, I think Cormier winning the, the, the grand prix certainly was a, was a big moment. It was, I was really happy for the guy, you know, being five foot 11, whatever he is and so much smaller than those guys. I always rooted for the underdog, the smaller guy. And uh, so that, that was certainly, you know, that was cool to watch. There was, there was so many good fights in strike force and Scott, Scott Coker did such a good job of developing, you know, the, the welterweight division, the, the middleweight division, the heavyweight division, which, the UFC, you know, when they bought out Strikeforce, they they wanted that heavyweight division because that heavyweight division obviously went into the UFC and, and as well as many of the welterweights and middleweights went in and and won titles, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. From what um, we had gorgeous George Garcia from MMA junkie radio on, and he was saying that he got told about a week before the purchase would be happening. And the thing that he was told, I think it was Joe Silva that told him this at that time was that they wanted more headliners. They just, just needed more names. And that strike force has done a great job building these guys up on showtime and making them marketable and making them bankable. And, and so, Hey, let's go in and, and buy them out, you know? So um, that, yeah. that fits with what you're saying. Um, well, we're down to our, la- our last couple of questions and then I'll let you go, but uh, what do you have currently going on um, that you'd like to discuss anything that you want to promote or mention that you're, that you're involved in right now? Well, I'm, I'm focused right now on a product that I've been selling for quite a while called black oxygen organics um, to explain it quickly. A gentleman who is an expert on the nutrients that come out of the earth, he tested um, 100, 100 and some bogs in Canada for the nutrient levels, found the one that was the highest in nutrient levels, had uh, patented a CO2 process, pressurized process, to re- remove the fulvic anemic minerals and acids from the bog mud, literally, freeze dry it, turn it into a powder. And when you take it twice a day, it adds 45% more oxygen at the cellular level, which is insane. There's nothing on the earth that does that. Um, it also carries heavy metals and toxins out of the cells. It resets the gut biome, resets the hormonal system. And I can tell you that I can't claim that this treats, cures, or prevents anything, but I can tell you three different people out of many, because in a short amount of time, I've got 1,500 customers. Um, my my, my brother, uh, who's 61 years old, had terminal cancer in the beginning of July. Two months later, um, the doctors at Iowa City University of Iowa Hospitals did not find any cancer in his blood anymore. Um, a good friend of mine who had had five joint replacements from what his doctor said is the worst case of rheumatoid arthritis they'd ever seen is now rheumatoid arthritis free. And this might freak you out a little bit, but it is factual. Um, good friend of mine who's a pastor up in Clinton, Iowa, was in hospice. And I gave it a shot and I got him on black oxygen. And two months later, they kicked him out of hospice and he's healthy as can be. And he's no longer, uh, no longer has hepatitis C. He saved the guy's life who tried to commit suicide. The guy bled all over him, gave him hepatitis C. So he was in hospice with liver and organ failure and, and uh, turned his life around. And the athletes that are on it are crushing their PRs because of the 45% more oxygen at a cellular level. So it's in terms of when I, first learned about this, I immediately knew what it was going to do because I was on a product that was about half as good that healed my respiratory system from black mold damage as a kid and gave me the endurance to win a world title. Um, subsequently, I put all my athletes on it who were high level guys and, and, you know, we were known for our endurance and there's a reason why it enabled us to train much harder than we could have. Um, so I knew, I knew this was going to be the biggest breakthrough and in healing and, and athletic performance that, that the world had ever seen. And honestly, the guy, Mark St. Owens, that, that figured this all out should get a Nobel Prize for what he's done just for the human condition with this stuff. And people can't believe it um, until they get on it, and then they, then they understand the power of it. So that's, that's what I'm doing full-time now. And, you know, I've, I've spent my life – it's kind of interesting. I'll just, I'll just say this quick. When I was a kid, my, my great uncle, Johnny Myler Milicic, who was on the 32 Olympic boxing team, fought as a professional, um, fought Maxie Rosenblum twice for the world title, wow. um, beat Joe Lewis as an amateur, was a great boxer. But every time I'd go to see him down in southern Iowa on the farm, he'd always be out in his flower garden and stuff. And he was the big, tough, you know, former fighter. And I always wondered why he was always 
out in a garden. And I think he lived that world of, of violence for so long that that's, he just wanted to do peaceful stuff. And, you know, so for me, thinking back on my career, I, you have to realize after you've retired, how many dreams you've ruined for other people by <laughs> realizing yours. Right. <laughs> and okay. so, I mean, literally, I mean, I, there's a lot of guys in my past that didn't win a world title because of me I, real quick. I'll jump like Mikey Burnett, for example, it's kind of funny. You said that. Cause I was like, it's a split decision. And if it goes the other way, you know, maybe I'm talking to him today. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I get what you're yeah. saying. Absolutely. And so for me, black oxygen is a way for me to kind of, kind of give back to be honest with you. And it's, it's changed so many people's lives. I get testimonials back from people with COPD to asthma, to diabetes, to you name it, arthritis, um, cancer, Again, I can't say it heals anything. All I can tell you is that everybody's sick. They might not realize it yet because they're young, but everybody's getting sick because we've mass produced food in the same soil for so long that it is completely void of minerals. Hmm. And you can't go to a store and buy inorganic mineral sources and expect your body to absorb them. You're an organic um, organism. You're not going to absorb inorganic material. So this is 100% organic plant-based material of basically 2,000 different types of plants that have decomposed for 60,000 years, and that's why it works so well. So that's you know that's my that's my reasoning, I'm, and it gives me great freedom. I don't I don't have to get out of bed if I don't want to. Of course I do. Um, I still love to work out, love to train, love to do my thing. But there's great freedom in being in in business for yourself. Well, so where, where can, uh, if, if listeners are interested, where can they go to, to learn more and, and, and purchase? Yeah, they can go to, it's blackoxygenorganics.com slash PJ Militich. And they can go there and I use the powder because you can put the powder in coffee. You can put it in water, put it in juice. You can put it in your bathtub and your skin absorbs it. It's helping people heal up from eczema, psoriasis, all kinds of different skin conditions when they put it in their bath. So, uh, it's, it's just all it is. It's the nutrients that we ha we've never had. Your food is void of it. And this is the stuff that used to be in our soil, but no longer is, and, you know? So it's, it's, it's just, it's impossible to explain to people. Most people go, ah, this guy's selling, selling uh, snake oil. Right. And I just go, you know, I, I can lead a horse to water. I can lead a horse to water, but I, I would say this to combat athletes or anybody involved in, you know, anybody that's a runner, a marathoner, um, you know, my ultra running buddies who are in their mid fifties have dropped a minute to two minutes off their per mile time on 20 mile training runs and their heart rates 30 beats less per minute. You know, if it does that, you don't do that in your mid fifties after you've been running for decades, it just doesn't happen. So that's the difference of pounding the cells with oxygen, not the blood, the cells, the stuff's nano in size. So it can travel in and out of the cells. And that's why it delivers all the nutrients and takes the, the garbage out of it as it leaves. Sounds fascinating. I, I'll definitely be checking that out myself. I, I appreciate you sharing that. All, all right, right. Well, last question. Uh, you, you gave some interviews when strike force folded in 2013 saying that essentially you were you know, disappointed it was gone, of course. So looking back now, now that the promotions and gone as we record this in 2021, you know, coming up on eight years, looking back now, what do you feel is strike force's place in MMA history? Boy, you know, served a great served a great purpose in improving the sport, the level of the sport, um, competition, development of athletes, 
making it more of a sport, less of a spectacle, you know, in my mind. And, you know, and showed that Scott Coker knew what the hell he was doing. And, you know, I, I think uh, he's, he's done a great job with, with Bellator now. Um, and it's nice to see that, you know, they've now signed with, with Showtime Sports. So they, right. they get to do it all. They get to have a reunion. Right. Yeah. I was, I was going to kind of like a little bonus question there was uh, rooting around in my head was that, you know, Hey, they just announced as we record this and this is going to publish in just a few days, but as we record this, they just announced that they're back on or Scott Coker's back on Showtime with Bellator and they're doing, Hey, a tournament, you know, where, where have we heard that before? So kind of everything that's old is new again. There's nothing new under the sun and uh, you know, let's hope it's as beneficial and, uh, you know, stronger relationship as it, as it was before and does for Bellator what it did for Strikeforce. So, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it will be, you know, I, I wish them all the luck and, um, you know, I'll be watching from afar and, and relaxing here in Iowa. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Mr. Militich, I appreciate you taking the time to join us on inside the hexagon. Uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts and your memories. And it was, uh, it was great connecting with you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, I want to thank my very special guest, UFC Hall of Famer Pat Militich, for taking the time to join us for today's episode. It was great chatting with him, getting his perspective on the promotion, talking a little bit about his career and then what he's got going on today. Hope that you enjoyed it as well. Looking ahead, we are going to be covering one of my favorite Strike Force events, Carano versus Cyborg, the very first MMA event in North America to be headlined by a women's bout. So very, very historic show. So we're going to talk about that. There's also a new Strikeforce light heavyweight champion. There's, it's such an action-packed card. Gilbert Melendez is on the card. Gegard Musassi's on the card. There's so much to get to, so I'm really, really excited about covering that. I was there in person, so we're going to talk about all that. So that's going to be what's going to be coming up next. After that, we've got some other shows in the pipeline. We're working on guests and that sort of thing. And then I've got a big announcement I'm going to be making from a business perspective. Uh, so st- stay tuned for that. Hope that you're also checking us out on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod. We're always putting out content on there. We'd love to interact with you. And then also, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at phil at insidethehexagon.com. I'd love to get your feedback on the show. And then lastly, if you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing the show. It would greatly help us. It would help others find the podcast. We want to get the word out as much as possible. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We will see you soon. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the 
the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.